0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? Good, good, good. Good morning to everyone online. Glad you could join us. Uh, Today, we're going to be continuing our new sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. And um, as you've already heard during the Advent candle lighting, today's theme during this season of Advent is on peace, that at Christmas, Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to invite us into the way of peace. Uh, On that note, I, I read a quote from a Jewish religion professor a few years ago about why she doesn't believe that Jesus came or that he's the Messiah saying that it's because she can look out the window and still see all this chaos and brokenness and oppression right the the opposite of peace and and to her the Messiah the prince of peace is supposed to remove the chaos in her mind so the world's brokenness is is proof in her mind that he hasn't yet come and and you know even at the end of Jesus's ministry the disciples still didn't quite understand this and, and how Jesus would, would bring peace either. Like many other Jews, they, they were still under the impression that, that Jesus had come to restore Israel as a sovereign kingdom. And, and, so, and so one of them, who, who has the unfortunate curse of having uh, the same name as Judas, the betrayer, Speaking of not having any peace. Anyways, this guy who's now known as Judas, not Iscariot. Can you imagine introducing yourself every time? Being like, hi, my name is Judas, not Iscariot though, right? Um, man, the, the stress he must, be under, he must have been under. Anyways, um, so he asked Jesus about this peace. And, and part of Jesus' answer to his question is this. Jesus says in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. But not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this peace that, that we celebrate at, at Christmas, at the birth of Christ, every year, this, this peace that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds on that, on that first Christmas night, is legit. It's, it's real. It's true. It's a free gift of grace. It's a peace, Jesus says, that can, that can comfort our troubled hearts and, and dissolve our fear even in the midst of this chaotic world. Though Jesus tells us, again, that, that the kind of peace that he gives to us is not the kind of peace that the world could ever muster up or even fully measure or even understand. In truth, just like the hope that we have in Christ, which is also intricately connected here, this peace which, which Christ has brought into the world goes much deeper. So what is this peace then? Well, Joel Beek and William Bokestein, in their book, Why Christ Came, 31 Meditations on the Incarnation, they write this. They say from the Greek word Irene, we get the word Irenic, which refers to peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. How many people have heard the word before, shalom? Shalom in the home. So the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. These words denote not only cessation of strife and the calm that follows, but also a wholeness and completeness that are found in Christ alone. A wholeness and completeness. The word, the, the word shalom actually gives us an image of, of the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world a time when God and, and mankind dwelt together in this state of holiness and in perfect order, in, in togetherness, in relationship, in love. Right? Before there was shame, before there was envy or pain or tears or striving or death. In fact, God's, God's plan of redemption throughout Scripture is meant to restore this peace between man, creation, and God and himself. And, and, and we can also see glimpses of this. We can, see, we can see seasons of this picture of wholeness and completeness throughout the Old Testament. Right? For example, in the times when, when Israel is restored as a nation and to God, the times and seasons where there, there aren't any wars or catastrophes because God is keeping them safe. Right? And, and even when the temple is finally finished by King Solomon, he refers to Israel as being in a state of shalom with God. Right? They're in the presence of God. But all these moments of peace that we see throughout scripture of man and God in shalom together were just temporary glimpses of a promised future reality. They, they were actually pointing us to a greater and deeper wholeness and eternal completeness that only Jesus could give. Ephesians 2:17 to 18 says it like this, it says when he came When Jesus came, he announced the good news of peace to you who were far away from God and to those who were near. That's Jew and Gentile. Now we both have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. So true and lasting peace, which comes from Jesus Christ, is this. It's shalom with God. It's a wholeness and completeness with God unfettered access to live and rest in his presence and as citizens of his kingdom. That is true in lasting peace. As an article I, I read stated, Shalom is the ideal for our individual lives and for that of God's creation at large. It's a return to God's original creation before it was marred. By humanity's sin. So ultimately, this peace is not just for us as, as individuals either, but, but, as for, but it's for the whole of creation. And we'll see that when He comes again. And on, the, on that end, uh, Zechariah, the priest Zechariah who we were introduced to last week, actually describes this shalom for us in his prophecy that, that Brad read earlier during the Advent reading. He calls it this shalom, the way of peace. And, and he describes for us what it looks like and how Jesus, the Messiah, will bring it about. Let's back up a bit, though. You might remember from the passage we read last week how Zechariah first responded with unbelief to the Lord's promise of hope that he would have a son, a son who would be anointed as well to prepare the way for the Messiah, but, but he had found it hard to believe right he he found it hard to believe that god could do this because him and his wife were were advanced in years too old to have kids and so because of his his unbelief here the angel gabriel informed him that that he would be disciplined <laughs> through being mute until this promise came to fruition and his son who was to be named john was born and so with his mouth shut right zechariah i'm sure had a lot of time Right, a lot of time in stillness and in quietness to ponder the word of God. Nine months of time, in fact. And, and when his son is finally born, and to the shock of all the family and friends that are gathered around there who expected uh, this, his son to be named after Zechariah, instead, he and his wife Elizabeth obediently name him John, and then his voice suddenly returns. And if God took away your voice for nine months, what would be the first thing you would do when you got it back? <laughs> exactly. I think or maybe some people might want to curse. I don't know. But the first thing he does is he blesses God. He blesses God, right? It it showed that that, that he's that he's pondered what God's done. And his faith and his hope have been restored, right? He blesses God and then filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies what the coming Messiah will do and how his own son, John, has been called to go before Jesus and prepare people to receive him. Ultimately, he concludes that this Messiah, whom his son is preparing the way for, will guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's, let's read his prophecy again together. Luke one sixty eight. It says blessed blessed is the Lord the God of Israel because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. And you, child, he's talking about his son John here, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So first and foremost, Zechariah reminds us in in his prophecy here that this peace at its core is a peace in our soul. At its core, this is a peace in our soul. He writes that Jesus, because of the compassion and and mercy of God, came into the world, right, to bring us out of the darkness of sin and death and into the light of eternal life. The dawn from on high will come and visit us, right, to bring us out of darkness and into the light. That the people will be given a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1:19 to 19-22 says it like this. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in Him, in Jesus, and He reconciled all things to Himself through Him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, He brought peace through the blood of His cross. So once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with Him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions... But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. So, so ultimately, sin puts us at enmity or, or in spiritual conflict with the holy God who is without sin, right? So sin destroys that shalom relationship that we're supposed to have with God. But Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross transitions us from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, from orphan to child, from sinner to saint, from broken to restored, from godlessness to righteous. As Paul David Tripp writes, peace results from being sure that the gulf that sin created between us and God has been forever bridged by the work of the Lord Jesus. So, from the greatest sinner to the most righteous, all who believe in Jesus by faith can be saved, restored, and forgiven in Christ by His grace alone. That's good news. And this, in turn, means that, that, that we no longer have to strive ceaselessly in, in, in our own strength to atone for our sins. There's no peace there, right, if we have to, if we have to continually try to atone for our sins, But now, through Christ, we can rest and be at peace in knowing that we're already saved through His perfect work. This also means that any shame or guilt or anxiety about whether God's pleased with us or not can be replaced with the peace of Christ, which can now rule in our hearts, giving us confidence in knowing that we are God's, that He loves us, and that He's pleased with us. Joseph Thayer writes, Peace is a a conception distinctly peculiar to Christianity. The tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. So th- this is the foundation of peace, right? A peace or shalom within our souls. When, when the rebellion with God in our, in our minds and our hearts is finally over and we can rest in his grace and mercy, assured of our salvation, assured of our calling. Jesus came into the world to accomplish this. And on that end, when, when we think about peace, though, I think most of us wonder at times why we humans just can't get along. Do we ever? Anyone ever wonder that? Why can't we just get along? Why are there wars? Why are there murders? Why is there stealing? Why is there greed and stepping on people to get ahead? Why is there so much fighting and name-calling and sexism and cheating and shaming and judgment in the world? Well, the Bible tells us that it's because tangible peace, that is peace without conflict, is impossible for us to achieve on our own. Because the issue lies directly within our own hearts, that sinful nature. And and unless that root of the problem is dealt with, we'll never know peace on earth. James 4, 1 to 3 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It goes on and on like that. So the point is that Jesus has to deal with this problem of sin within us so that we can have peace in our hearts, which then will translate to our relationships with others so that we can reconcile with others. Where we're no longer prone to envy or slander or hate, but rather walking in the way of peace, desiring to do whatever is necessary to be peacemakers and live peaceably with our fellow man. But the reality is that until Jesus comes again in glory to renew heaven and earth, we still live in this broken world, a world that may even turn against us at times for also opposing that which seeks to corrupt this peace. Theologian Wayne Field writes, true peace exists within a soul that is right with God, despite what is happening in the world. In fact, when we make our peace with God, we invite conflict with the world into our lives. That's because peace with God involves opposition to Satan and his work in the world, and you can't have it both ways. If we want true peace, we must make our peace with God and not with the world. So this is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Right? Some people, when they read that, they think, what? I thought, he, I, thought he, I thought he was a prince of peace, but he came to bring a sword. What does that mean? Well, his statement isn't a threat or a call to violence. He's, he's saying that believing in him and knowing this eternal peace with God will in turn bring temporary conflict with the world and those of the world, since we cannot be friends with both. John fifteen nineteen says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so, so the question now is, how can we maintain this peace within us and be peacemakers when the world around us is anything but? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a method that we can follow. And you've heard this passage, passage before many times over the last year, I'm sure but it's still important to have this reminder. Philippians 4, 6-9 says this, Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. And then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent, And if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, or saw in us, the God of peace will be with you. So one of the reasons we celebrate Advent is to be reminded of this, to think on what is excellent and what is true and what is noble, what is holy and just and lovely and pure and worthy of praise so that we can be constantly reminded that God is with us. He came to be with us. His peace is with us. And Advent reminds us as well that those good things and blessings we're called to dwell on. As, as Pastor Blair said earlier, we're, we're all wrapped up and packaged for us by God and a person, fully God and yet fully man, who came to us lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. In Jesus Christ, He came into a world of chaos to bring us, to invite us into a way of eternal and lasting peace. A piece that exceeds our understanding. Which means that as, as we set our faith and as we set our trust in him, as, as we lay our sin and burdens at his feet and, and present to him our worries and our anxieties in prayer, as we live according to his word, as we consider his works and, and the miracle of not only his birth, but his death and resurrection and the love with which he loves us, as as we ponder with awe and gratitude at his grace and salvation, in other words, as we look to Jesus alone, this peace that's beyond understanding, beyond comprehension, is ours. It's with us, keeping our minds and our hearts safe. And so whenever we're feeling overwhelmed or, or scared or frustrated or filled with anxiety and worry, practice these things. Turn to Jesus. Think on him. Think on who he is and what he's done. Ponder his word. Cast your cares on him and step into this supernatural peace. And you might think, well, that's nice. But feeling at peace doesn't really solve the problems we're dealing with today. Feeling at peace doesn't pay the bills or, or write our exams for us or, or make our decisions for us. True, but the wisdom of God can help with those things. And in the same vein, the peace of Christ gives us a a, a perspective and brings us to a place of a clarity where He can work in and through us, where we're not making rash decisions from places of fear and hurt or greed or envy. It's a peace that guards our hearts and minds in all circumstances and, and reminds us that God can and will work all things for good for those who love Him. A couple of years ago, I was, I was driving my kids to school, and, and they were actually behaving. I'm just kidding. They usually behave, but, you know, they, they weren't doing any, anything you know, they weren't poking each other or bugging each other for once. So, so things were feeling pretty chill and relaxed in the car on the way to school. Peaceful-like, even. But then, all of a sudden, for no reason in particular, I, I don't know if this happens to you guys, but for no reason in particular, my mind just started to think on things that weren't so pleasant. Just like stuff just popped into my head, right? Things that, things that started to make me feel angry and anxious hurtful things that had been said against me in the past, friends I've let down, frustrations I'd been experiencing, thoughts of people in the church that are hurting and struggling, sins I've committed that make me feel unworthy, coupled with that constant nagging feeling that I'm not good enough as a father or as a husband or as a pastor or as a Christian. All these thoughts and more like it just started to to bubble up like a volcano inside of me. And all of this happened in just mere seconds. It's, It's hard to explain. My blood was boiling I wanted to lash out and started to think hateful things about others that had hurt me and, and, th- and things about myself. And, and when I look back on it, I'm, I'm convinced that it was a, a spiritual attack, especially because in that, that very moment, I, I, because in the very moment I was sure to explode and, and give in to the anger and hopelessness of it all, I merely called out to Jesus. Not, not audibly, just barely, a, a desperate call from within my spirit. A small heart's cry and, and instantly what felt like a river of peace, as it says in Psalm 66, a river of peace just washed over me. A, a river that washed away my anger and shame and guilt and despair, like light pouring out over my, over my darkness. And that's Jesus, the light that comes and takes away that darkness. Peace. Peace, beyond understanding peace that broke into the midst of my internal and spiritual chaos. And it, and it doesn't always go like that or feel like that. But in that moment, it did. And my mind and my heart were kept safe in Jesus at a time when I, when I, when I felt like I was being overrun, overwhelmed by the accuser. It was as Jesus said to his disciples, the, the peace, this peace I give you and leave with you so that your hearts may not be troubled or afraid. So yes, He knew that this world would be full of hardships and chaos and anxieties and worries and sadness and things that would fill us with fear, especially as we live out our calling as His disciples. That's why He gives and leaves His peace with us to strengthen and comfort us as we live in this world and as we follow Him. As it says in Isaiah 9, Jesus is the, the prince of peace. And of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. It doesn't end. Right? Zechariah's prophecy reminds us that we can, we can experience this peace because he's defeated the enemy. And now he sits on the throne of David with all authority. You know, many, many Jews at the time of his birth expected that he'd come to defeat the Romans, that he would overthrow King Herod and then restore their nation by reclaiming the throne of Israel, even through war or rebellion if needed. That's why King Herod tried to have him killed off when he was a child. But that's not how Jesus won peace for us, right? Instead, Jesus laid down his life. He won this peace for us by dying on the cross for our sins, and in doing so, he defeated our true enemies, not those of flesh and blood, but of the forces of evil. And because Jesus has now won the victory over Satan, over sin and death, this means we have nothing now to fear. We can overcome by faith because Jesus has overcome. And since his rule never ends, our peace in him will never end either. It cannot be stolen from us no matter where we are or what we're going through. That is until he returns again and we get to know his peace in full. On that day, everything will become shalom for good. Heaven and earth will be restored. The the established kingdom of God will be revealed, and all will be made right again in the presence of God. And on that note, we're just going to change gears a bit here because until that day, we need to realize as well that as God's people, the church, us, right, We've been established in His peace to be the expression and vehicle of that peace on earth. Just as John the Baptist was called to prepare the way of the Lord to, to rec- for the people to receive this peace, right? We've been called as well to proclaim the gospel of peace and salvation to the world. Granted, historically, historically, The church has had its many regrettable moments where we've done a terrible job at proclaiming and displaying this peace. When we've completely ignored, clearly outlined passages of Scripture about this. But we, today, have the chance to make amends, to be true ambassadors of Christ as peacemakers in the world. And the Bible tells us many ways in which we're called to do that. And we can't go in too depth here this morning, but, but I want to go through a couple of the ways we're called to proclaim the peace of God in this world. Because while the world doesn't know this peace or understand it, it does long for it, right? It longs for peace, just as it longs for hope, as we learned last week. It also longs for peace. And, and that's why it, it, the world tries to create it, try, tries to pursue peace through war, through contracts, through passivity movements, through laws and punishments, through social pressures, through, through meditation and, and, and things like that, right? But they're just temporary. They, these are just treating the symptoms, not the problem. They'll never arrive at lasting peace without, first of all, knowing and following the source of peace, without having their hearts changed and restored. And that's why it's our task in, in the power of the Holy Spirit to... to who works in and through us to present the gospel of peace to them, to show them how to find peace on earth. And so how do we do that as Christians? I have two points here. One, we display Christ's peace on earth by pursuing peace within the church. Sometimes this is easier said than done. Ephesians 4.3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I think some people have scratched that one out of their Bibles. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Since we've been given peace with God through Jesus, it only makes sense that that we should have peace with everyone else who believes in Jesus as well. Not not only does it make sense, but that's how it's supposed to be. Our, Our bond with Christ is directly correlated to our bond with one another in the church. We're saved in the same kingdom, filled with the same Spirit, born again through Christ into the same hope. And so strengthening that bond, and not dwelling on our petty disagreements, should be our pursuit. And yes, as, as we read in James 4, our, our, our human nature often rears its ugly head and, and, we, and we hurt one another or we judge one another. We lie to one another or step over one another in order to elevate ourselves or because of envy or, or greed or whatever. But, but this is not who we're called to be. Again, Solomon called the restoration of the temple shalom. Right? That completeness, a wholeness. And as Christians, we're the new temple of God. And so we should pursue that shalom as well. And this is this is this is important, not just for us, but because when we're at peace with one another, that's a testimony to the world. If the world looks at us and says, Oh, you, they can't get along, what good is that? Right? When we're at peace with one another, that's a testimony to the world. And when we're at peace with one another, we're also more effective as we go out into the world. That's so why Matthew 5.9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The evidence that we're part of God's family is our pursuit of peace, to stand together in what we agree on rather than creating division because of the petty things we disagree on. That leads us to the second point. So we display Christ on peace, Christ's peace on earth by seeking peace then with our fellow man. Hebrews 12.14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So first all, I want to clarify really quickly, this doesn't mean that we become friends with the world in the way that, that we're warned against repeatedly in Scripture, right, by being influenced by the world, but rather we need to continually pursue holiness through befriending the world in the way that Jesus befriended sinners, right, by loving and influencing them. And, and ultimately, what it means then is that, is that as long as we're not in conflict with our faith and mission, we're to act peaceably and be peacemakers in the world, wherever possible, even with those we disagree with. And, and this isn't just to, to convert them either. But because, at its foundation, because everyone is made in the image of God. And because we're called to live in peace with one another. And yes, the reality is that this isn't always possible. Again, even just following Jesus and, and standing firm in our faith can put us at odds with the world. But that shouldn't stop us, though. You know, if if, if people hurt us for being Christians, we don't hurt them back, right? We even we try to love and even seek peace with our enemies. Because, you know, this, this is a high calling, right? We need to realize that, that when we seek peace with the world, we're actually demonstrating to them the exact way that Jesus treated us. Remember, we were enemies of God in our sin. And then Jesus freely offered us a peace treaty with God through his own blood. He laid down his life to create peace. And therefore, when we display, when we display this to others in our own lives, we're, we're calling the world to also be invited into the very peace with the one whom we represent. We're inviting the world to see and know the true and restorative peace that's available in Jesus Christ, which means that whenever possible, we're called and we're strengthened and and we're filled with the Holy Spirit to bring peace even in places where it doesn't even seem to belong, where, where it doesn't even seem possible. We're called to bring the grace and love of Jesus to sinful and broken hearts, to broken homes, during conflicts at work, to help mend arguments among friends or among our kids or or with our spouse. We're we're to stand against broken social systems and stand alongside victims of abuse and racism and assault and slavery to bring peace by forgiving and, and also apologizing and seeking reconciliation when we mess up as well. That's such an important aspect of bringing peace And this part seems obvious, but I'll say it anyway. We, we bring peace by not living lives where we're, where we're constantly stirring up drama. You know, spreading rumors and blah, 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 right? Where we're not stirring up drama and accusation and, and disagreements and, and, and harboring bitterness. Right? No matter how tempting it may seem. No matter how much you've been hurt. But instead to live lives of goodwill toward mankind in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, there there, there are so many ways and opportunities to be harbingers of peace in this broken world. So I want to encourage each of you to continually uh, be asking God to to open your eyes to these opportunities and for Him to give you the boldness and, and humility to be peacemakers in His name. And on that end, we also need to be asking God to to continually keep us from from the temptation of contributing to the chaos too, right? And we can't do that on our own. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. And we need the Spirit to keep us established in this calling. As Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this is the call for us, for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts through the power of His Holy Spirit, for it to be the driving force, the foundation for the way we live in this world. And this glorifies God. And that leads me to the the passage that I want to end this message with a passage that, that reminds us that the, the, the source of our joy in this life and the next, the thing that can turn any horrible uh, day, a day to rejoice in, the, the thing that keeps us from evil and draws us to do good and helps us to stand firm, this thing above anything else is, is the gospel of peace that we've been given in Christ. 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12a says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. On that note, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love with which you've loved us that you chose to love the world in this way, a world that had, had turned against you in sin. That instead of, of casting judgment or, or abandoning us, Lord, that you desire to, to be in shalom with us, that you sent your one and only begotten Son into the world as a baby. to live a life we couldn't live, and then to die and rise again, to defeat our enemies, to conquer the power of sin and death so that we could be at peace within our souls. And Lord God, I pray that, that, that your Holy Spirit would give us the strength to be reflections of that peace in the world, that we can be peacemakers with one another within the church, that we can be peacemakers with those outside of the church as well, Lord God, and that you would be glorified in our lives, Lord, that we would be examples and pillars and vehicles of this peace on earth, of your peace on earth. We thank you, Jesus, for for the cross, for your blood that was shed for us, Lord. And we come now before you to to remember and proclaim that together. Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.